And then as, as well, if you would go ahead and grab your Bible, and, uh, or however you access the scriptures, and uh, find your way to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verses uh, 16 through 27 this morning. So we are finally coming to the end of our series that we've been going through in the fall, which has been focusing on idols, everybody's favorite topic when you're hitting things that are really close to home. And the the title of the series has been Undivided, dealing with the things that keep us from God, and idols keep us from God, and sometimes take the place of God in our lives. So we've been walking through this, and so hitting on a lot of different things each week. So today is the, kind of the finale of, of this series, and it's, a, it's important, uh, as we've started this series and walked through it, to understand that idols aren't necessarily always the obviously evil or bad things in our life. Idols usually are good things that become ultimate things and take the place of God. But you and I need to understand, and this is we're going to focus on today, how God actually feels about the idols in our life. In fact, if you see the title of the message today, it's pretty strong. We're going to talk about why God hates idols. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. Hate, that's kind of a strong term, don't you think? God feels very passionate about us. He loves us deeply. And anything that, that seeks to take his place in our life, to take us down a road that will lead to destruction or devastation in our life, he feels extremely passionate about. It gets stirred up inside of him how he reacts to that. Why? Because his, his love is so deep and profound for us. And so God actually does hate things. The Bible lists a number of things that God hates. God does hate idols because they take away from what he wants to do in our lives. And so we're going to look at a passage here in, in Acts 17. But I want you to think about, because you and I, whether we know it or not, now obviously we're not supposed to hate in terms of hating other people because hate ultimately leads to murder. But there is the passion that feels like hatred in our life towards things that we respond to because we feel deeply about them. We feel a deep sense of passion or reaction to something because of what we've witnessed or what we've been a part. So it's that raw emotion that comes that's not orchestrated, it's not calculated, it just comes from within us because something transpires in our life. Think about one of those moments. I've shared this story before, but when Courtney was about four years old, she, we, we lost her at the Ventura County Fair. That's like the ultimate nightmare for any parent. And it was only three or four minutes, maybe even less, but it felt like an eternity. She, we were at a table. She got up in one way. The rest of us went another. And we didn't calculate or think about she was going the other direction until literally she left the, the, the food area and was out on the midway where all the rides were. And so we lost her completely. I mean, nowhere. Couldn't see. And so in that moment, when you turn and you cannot, you know, normally like, oh, she's not there. She's not there. She, and you're waiting as you span. You know, parents, you know what I'm talking about? You're going to find your kid. And she's nowhere. I mean, literally nowhere. We're, we're, and, and then panic sets in. And then immediately, this is what happened. As we're like, literally, we're all spreading out all over the place. Where's Courtney? Where's Courtney? And, trying, and running. And I can feel it. The, the motion in me starts to boil up. And, and what I, this is what starts happening. In my mind in that moment, her life and my life flashed before me. And in, in that moment, I felt, what is her life going to be like apart from us? And what is our life going to be apart from her? Because the first thing that came to my mind is somebody took her. Somebody's kidnapped her. She's gone. So I'm in this full-on panic, and we're searching, and we're searching, and I finally, I turn the corner out to the, where the rides are, and Courtney's like 30 feet away, standing, standing there talking to a stranger. And I just start screaming her name, and I say, Courtney, Courtney, and she turns around, and then she starts crying, and I start crying. I mean, just uncontrolled, and I grabbed her, and I picked her up, and she hugged me, and, and we were crying, and then literally I let Kim hug her for 10 seconds, and then I stole her back, and I literally squeezed her all the way to the car as I told her how much I loved her, and how much she's never going to do that again to me in her life. <laughs> what was going on there? 
in that moment, I thought, and what came out of me was the raw emotion and my, my love for my daughter that I could not imagine life apart from her. That came out of nowhere. That's the kind of passion that we're going to talk about this morning. That's the kind of way, that's the way that God feels about us when he sees something stealing our attention. And ultimately what happens is idols will kidnap our affection from God. It will steal us away from what God wants for us. God feels deeply about that when it happens in our life because he loves us so much. So if you have your Bibles, let me read starting in verse 16 of Acts 17. We'll go to verse 27. So what we're reading is a passage of one of Paul, who's the Apostle Paul, one of his journeys in mission He's, he's in the city of Athens, and as he does, he would normally go into a synagogue, and he would begin to talk with the Jews, and then sometimes he would expand beyond that. And what he's doing is he basically is looking at the city he's in. He's, he's observing what is there, and he writes about that as he responds to a group of people. So let's, let's follow along here. Verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, why does this babbler wish to say, or what does he wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from him one man for every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So Paul's reaction to the idols in this city demonstrate for you and I the way God feels about idols in our life. And there's a key passage we'll get to in the middle of this, but I want to walk through this passage because Paul is defining for us why God feels so passionately against idols in our life, why God actually hates idols. The first thing is look at verse 22. God hates idols because idols lead to religion. If you weren't here the last couple of weeks, we talked about, about religion actually becomes an idol because it becomes a belief system that we embrace, that we think is going to get us to God, but it only stops us short of God. We embrace more of the religion than the relationship of who God is. But listen to what Paul says in verse 22. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, if most of those in Athens would probably say, Well, thank you, Paul. That was a very nice compliment. It was a good thing. You're, he's seeing that they have all these idols and all these deities, and so they're religious. But the, the core of what the word religious means actually is not a positive. It could be a negative. Because the core of religion is, in fact, even defined by this word, can be known as superstition. And when you look at religion in terms of that concept, 
then religion really isn't something that's all that positive. Because what is superstition? This is the way Webster's Dictionary defines it. Superstition is the result of ignorance, fear, or trust based on something that is false. That's religion. That, can you imagine that you base your life on a system of belief that really at, the, at its core is based on superstition, which is basically I say things a certain way, I do things a certain way, hoping for a certain outcome. If you live your life that way and it ends up what you've lived your life on is false, then you've made a fool of yourself. So in a sense, maybe Paul wasn't necessarily complimenting them, but he was trying to correct them. Why is this so important? How many times in our life do you and I come up with superstitions that we think are based on truth, but in reality, they're a lie? Anybody watch baseball? I think baseball players are the most superstitious people in the world. If you don't think think so, next time you watch a baseball game, watch the pitcher, because pitchers come from kind of two schools of thought on superstition. After the inning's over and the pitcher's walking off the mound and they're walking towards the dugout, watch them, because they will do one of two things. They will either step on the foul line or they will step over the foul line. It's interesting to watch this. In fact, if you watch a pitcher who's coming across and they have this belief that if they step on the foul line, it's bad luck and their superstition is if I don't step on it, I'll still pitch good and I'll win the game, then even if their, their rhythm of steps takes them to where their next step will land on the foul line, they'll either stutter step or they'll take a huge step over it so that they don't step on the foul line. And if it's the other side, then they'll make sure they land right on the foul line. No joke. Almost every pitcher has this kind of superstition. And what is that? That's based on somehow I pitched really good in a game one time and I didn't step on the foul line anytime, so I'm going to keep doing that. Why? Because I hope that next time I'll do the same thing when I pitch. You know what? It doesn't work because no pitcher has ever gone undefeated, at least recently. They've never won every game they pitched in. But they still do the same thing. They go through the routine. And you think, well, oh, that's for baseball. That doesn't apply to faith. Absolutely applies to faith. Jesus encountered it right out of the bat, right out of the gate. When he comes and he starts performing miracles, what do the religious leaders, the religious leaders say? Sorry, Jesus, wrong day. He heals a blind man. He causes a, a lame man to walk. He, lets, uh, he allows a deaf person to hear. And what happens? The religious leaders are front and center. They see the miracle, and all they can see is not, wow, God is amazing. All they can say is, up, oh, you had six other days to do it. You chose the wrong day, so this can't be real. What is that? That's superstition. Remember when Jesus would hang out with sinners and he would eat with sinners? And they would say, oh, no, no, Jesus, you can't do that. Why? Because their superstition taught that if you hang out with sinners, you'll become one. Their sin will rub off on you and you're going to be impure like them. Then how in the world could Jesus end up with sinners and not be sinful? Because that was a superstition. See, you and I have to understand God feels very passionate about when we become religious about our faith because he realizes that that system of thinking will actually take us further than closer to him. So he feels passionate about that. You and I have to be careful that we don't allow the idols in our life to become religious. Second thing, verse 23, God hates idols because idols are cheap substitutes. Verse 23, so Paul goes on. He says, for as I passed along, observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as known, this I proclaim to you. So Paul is going through this parade of altars and different things that set up these deities that people worship in Athens, even to the point where, and this is my, my kind of speculation, they have one set up for the unknown God because they want to cover their bases. If there's one we haven't named yet, one we haven't found yet, then we better make sure we identify that because why? They're superstitious. We don't want the unknown God to get mad at us, so we better give him his own place. 
So Paul says, you even have that. You even have that. But, but what he's going to say in a moment is all that doesn't matter. Why? Because all of that is just a substitute for the real thing. And they're even trying in their best efforts. We know that maybe we haven't found the real thing, so let's give an altar to the unknown God so maybe we find the real thing. Because what they're maybe admitting is all of what they have is a substitute for the real thing. They haven't found the real thing yet. And God feels very passionate about idols because they represent something real, and in reality, they're a cheap substitute for him. And they can't deliver on what only God can deliver on. And this is, this is important because Paul was highlighting something for them. They had believed into a system of thought that said there's multiple gods and you have to worship one. And if you worship one in superstition, then good things will happen to you. That was their superstition. But if you believe that and you were like them, you could end up living your entire life only to get to the end of your life and discover that your entire life was lived in vain. Because the very thing that you thought was true was a cheap substitute for the real thing. Now you think, well, that can never happen to me. I, I know Jesus. You don't think so? I think so. Because remember last week, if you heard, and the week before we talked about the obsession with Christianity. Jesus never came to form Christianity. Christianity is a man's term. It's a system of thought that we've come up with. Jesus came to establish relationship with God through his death and resurrection. That was why he came. You and I wanted a nice, neat little bow and box, so we put Christianity on it. And then we start to, just like the Jews did, they took the law and then they added more and more and more because they thought they could improve on what God had already done. So we have to be careful. What is it like to get to the end of something and realize what you thought was so important and so significant and real isn't real at all? You feel betrayed. You feel like a fool. I remember feeling like a fool when I was five years old. I have a vivid memory of when that happened. I may have shared this before, but I had the honor of being the ring bearer at my aunt and uncle's uh, wedding. And so I took it very seriously. I mean, I had to dress up in a tux. I didn't even know what a tux was at five years old. But they got me all dressed up. I had the shiny shoes on and the bow tie and everything. And then a half hour before the ceremony, just before we did some pictures, they handed me this beautiful little white pillow with two rings on it. And remember when I got it, I'm like, I can't believe this. They gave me the rings. I knew rings were important. Because my mom and dad had them. I thought, this is really significant. And so I I hung on to those rings for a half hour. But if you're a five-year-old, you know you get a little curious. And so I started fidgeting and playing with the rings. And before I know it, I broke one of the rings. And I'm like, this is not good. I'm like supposed to hold the rings. And so this is like, now we're getting just like five minutes before it. And my mom is now getting in line to go down the aisle. And I know my spot. And I'm like, what do I do? And, and so I'm, in, I'm, I'm not kidding. Five years old, I'm going to fall on panic because I've just ruined my, my, my aunt and uncle's wedding day because I broke the rings. And so we walk down the aisle, we get in. I remember I was positioned about five feet away from my mom, who was the, the maid of honor, matron of honor. And so she's standing there, and no joke, right in the middle of, of the, the ceremony, I lean over, I'm like, Mom! I said, Mom, I, I broke the rings. And you know, Mom's giving me one of those, shh, shh, not now, not now, you know. And so I'm like, no, Mom, I broke the rings. And so I'm like holding them out to her. This is right in the middle of the ceremony. And she looks down, and she goes, they're not real. And I looked up at her, I'm like, I was half relieved and half offended <laughs> that they had given me fake rings. And I thought I was so important in that moment that I was bringing the rings only to find out that some of the guy had them in his pocket for later, right? <laughs> but I remember that moment. I was like, well, this is just a stupid pillow then. What am I even doing here? I wanted to walk off the stage. <laughs> Anybody ever relate to that? You're totally, it's totally in vain. You thought you were the centerpiece and you're not even in the game, Right? <laughs> The worst reality is for you and I to live a life and at the end of our life look back and realize, ooh, I bought into a cheap substitute. That wasn't even the real thing. I didn't bother to really find out if this is really God or if I just made it into my own God and then found out at the end it wasn't God at all. 
See, that's what Paul was getting at with this group of people, and that's what God is getting at with us. Idols are cheap substitutes. Third thing, God hates idols because idols are man-made. Paul goes on verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Oh, this is so powerful. What is Paul saying? Remember, this is a Jew who in his history understood that the presence of God in his history dwelt in one place. Where was that? It was in a building. It was either in the tabernacle when they were in transition or it was in the temple in the Holy of Holies and that's where the presence of God was. They had to go to the presence of God. But Paul knows that when Jesus died, that the temple veil was ripped from top to bottom, the Holy of Holies was opened up so that the presence of God no no longer was resident in a location, but God's spirit comes to dwell in his people so God's presence is where? In us. That's crazy. That's why Paul actually says, don't you know you're the temple? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit because God dwells in you. We sang it about today is that heaven what is in us. So this is the reality now Paul's working with. And so he's saying to all of these people who are now worshiping man-made creations that you guys are missing it. God doesn't dwell and he doesn't live in man-made things. He lives in people. Why is that significant? Because you and I will stop short of worshiping God and we will worship things that are created. We'll worship created things. Well, why, what are they doing? They were building buildings and they were building altars and they were saying, our God resides there and therefore I go to that place. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That, that's an idol. Because what happens is that that building or that altar becomes more important than God himself. And that's why even like the cross, the cross is not something you and I have to have. There's nothing special about the cross other than what it reminds you and I of. It points us to Jesus. It's not sacred in and of itself. It's what it points to. And if you and I will think about that for a moment, that things that are man-made become things that take place of what God wants to be in our lives. This is something that you and I see every day. This is something that Paul saw every day of his life. In fact, listen to what Paul also wrote about this kind of thing in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25, where he says this. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sinful in, or sexual impurity for the degrading of their, their bodies with one another. And then verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Oof. Paul's saying some pretty powerful things about the way we look at created things. Now, most of us don't go out and build a building or set up an altar in our backyard, but I know one of the ways that we do, cre- we do worship created things over the creator is that whether we want to admit it or not, we worship personalities. We worship people. And we've talked about how an, another human being, it could be your spouse or, or it could be your girlfriend or boyfriend, it could be somebody that you love deeply, can actually become an idol. But I think even beyond that, I think there are certain people that we admire and we look up to and we value, and, and without even meaning to, they can actually take the place of God in our lives. And especially in the church, we have to be really careful of this. Because no one human being is going to do what only God can do in your life. No one human being is perfect. Only God is. But we lose sight of that. I remember when I was young growing up at Church on the Way in Van Nuys, and by the way, this story is not about Jack Hayford, so I'm not going to ruin anything for you, okay? 
Most of you know who Jack is, and he's obviously a very influential leader and was so in my life. But one of the pastoral staff members, when I was when we first started attending church on the way, w- took a, an interest in me and was just an amazing guy. In fact, every Sunday I would be at church, and church on the way was just huge. He would always find me. He would talk with my parents, and he would talk with me. And I just, you know, as a as a young kid, you know, most of the the, the leaders just were too important and too busy. They didn't have time, but he always had time for me. And so he would talk to me about my week and just had a, had a way of always making you feel good about yourself, really encouraging all the time. And I remember uh, during a period of my, my life when I would come to church, I wasn't so worried about if Jesus was going to show up. I just wanted to make sure he was there. If this leader was there and he was going to come talk to me, then I would feel really good. I would feel really important because it didn't matter what the worship was like or the teaching, which, by the way, I could never understand Jake Hibbard when I was young, and I still can't today, but I know he's really amazing. But I remember if this guy was there, then, man, it was church for me. Then I got a little bit older and, and got into middle school and started being in the middle school class. And so wasn't in church as much, didn't see him as, as much. But three or four years go by and then I hear news that for a decade he was having an affair with multiple women behind his wife's back. And so he had to remove him from leadership. And then I just started to discover everything about him was a lie. He was manipulative. And, and I remember running into him a year or two later and he wasn't the same person. He was upset and bitter and arrogant and, and didn't, it wasn't the same. And I remember at that moment, it was so devastating because for me, the lens of Jesus passed through this man. That's who I was looking at Jesus through. And so I started to question, if he isn't real, then maybe this whole thing is a lie. And I, I, was, I was thankful for really good parents who were helpful in helping me to see that when the human beings fail you, Jesus never fails you. And sometimes we need to be reminded. Now, it sounds like, oh, yeah, I get that, I get that. But wait till the person that you value the most. And it doesn't have to be a moral failure, removal from leadership. Wait till the person who you think is perfect proves you wrong. And then what do you do? Because now your God has become imperfect and your God has let you down. Why? Because that has become your idol. Instead of saying, you know what? People fail, but God never does. I can admire people. I can love people. I can learn from people. But I can never idolize people. Because then they take the place of God in my life, and that ultimately what leads to disappointment. That's why so many people say, well, I gave up on the church because the church is full of hypocrites. Guilty as charged, aren't we all? That's why we don't base our faith on human beings. We base our faith on who? On Jesus Christ. Then the fourth reality of why God hates idols is because, and here's the core of what Paul is saying, he is jealous. Now, some of you are thinking, now, wait a second. You're telling me that God hates and God is jealous. Those are bad things. How does the Bible even say that? Now, anger, and we know, obviously, is, is the root cause that can lead to hate, that can lead to murder. But we're not talking about it when we talk about what God hates. But when you think, it's never good to be jealous, but God's jealousy is a different kind of jealousy. So listen to what Paul says, or what it says of, of Paul in the first verse we read, verse 16. It says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, a group that was going to come and join, and his spirit, and this is the key word in the whole passage, was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. That word provoked is so powerful because it explains everything going on around it. The word provoked, actually, if you take the Greek word that's there, it's the, the English word that we get, uh, where we derive from that Greek word. The English word is the word seizure. So it's a pretty powerful word. It's as though Paul is like, in a seizure kind of moment of how he feels because he sees the idols. And I think, well, well, Paul's feeling kind of angry and he needs to kind of pipe down a little bit. No, wait a second. That word is connected to a work, word in Hebrew in the Old Testament. And that word is the same word that has described the emotional state of God in response to his people when they take on idols in their lives. 
that God is provoked to jealousy. Now, why, why in the world would it be okay for God to be jealous and us not to be jealous? Here's why. You and I get jealous of other people because we don't want someone to love somebody else. We want them to love us. And that's really selfish. It is. It's because we care more about ourselves than them. And so we get jealous for their affection. But see, here's the difference with God. God is perfect and God is the best. Therefore, God is jealous because he wants us to have the best. And the best is him. You get that? Now, that sounds strange. That's not egotistical, and that's not God on this kind of ego trip. That is God saying, I want the best for my people. The best for them is me at the center of their life. And anything else that comes along, I'm jealous for their affection because that will be secondary. That will be a cheap substitute. That won't be what they really need. They need me. So what Paul is saying is Paul's feeling the exact same emotion that God feels in response to idols. Why? Because God's just mad and wants to ruin our lives? No, because God feels so deeply for our affection and our love that anything that gets in the way of that, he feels passionate about. So this is what's going on here. In fact, I've uh, recommended the book, strongly recommend it still through the series, a, a book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. It's all about idols, excellent book. But listen to what Tim Keller says about this. He says, God is a jealous God who, uh, because he becomes emotionally charged when he sees those he loves so deeply turning some, to something that is empty or will destroy them. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. God is not indifferent to our pursuit of idols because he truly loves us. If God didn't care about us, he wouldn't care about idols. Go on, do your thing. Why? That would be indifferent. You go figure it out on your own. But God feels so passionate about us and what he wants for our lives that when something gets in the way of that, he comes after us. He seeks after us. He pursues us constantly in our lives. And we'll talk about that in in a couple more points in one of the, the verses at the end of this passage. But God is in constant pursuit of us. Why? Because we're always wandering off. We're always choosing something other than him. But he continues to pursue and he continues to pursue and he comes after us. Why? Because he knows he wants the best for us and he is the best. So he pursues us. It's like, it's like a, you know, a movie scene. You can, you have to part the, the illustration. Okay, this is the one that just keeps coming to my mind. Anybody seen the movie The Wedding Singer? So this shows how old I am because I thought that only came out a few years ago. It's 20 years ago that movie came out, okay? And now when you like movies that are considered classics and they were the movies that you liked, it kind of makes you feel really old. Anyway, long story short, if you don't know the storyline, see the movie. I apologize for the language, but if you're a, a fan of 80s music, you will love the movie, Okay. So anyway, Adam Adam Sandler plays a a wedding singer named Robbie, and uh, he falls in love with this girl, and she's engaged to be married to a guy who's just a creep, and long story short, she doesn't really know that Robbie loves her, and he can't come to kind of communicate it in a clear way, and so she uh, basically makes her mind she's going to marry the creep, and so they go off to Vegas, they get on a plane, and so Robbie realizes that he's being stupid, and he can't articulate that he loves her, and he needs to do it, so he doesn't have any money, so he borrows money from his friends, and he gets on the same plane with them, not knowing he's on the same plane, and he finds out she's uh, sitting in first class, and he's in coach, and long story short, whatever, What ends up happening is he writes this song for her. He gets on the PA of the plane and starts singing to her and everything. And, and, you know, it it all ends great because she comes to her senses. She dumps the creep. She embraces him. And everybody lives happily ever after in a really cool 80s kind of thing. What I love about that movie is that he finally realized the only way he's going to get her is if he went after her. He couldn't wait for her to come to her senses. He couldn't wait for her to realize that, that Glenn was a creep. He had to really go after her so that she would know that he loves her. And that's the same thing that God does. You know that you think, oh, that's a stupid illustration, wedding singer. I hated the movie. 
You know what? That's very biblical because what's described between us is God and God is a marriage. Why is the church known as what? The bride of Christ. We're married. And his pursuit is constant for us because he loves us so deeply. He's coming after us. Anything that stands in his way. So God is provoked to jealousy. Why? Because he knows he's the best and he wants us to have him because he's the best in our lives. So he continues to pursue us. Now look at verse 25 because this is the, the fifth reality of why God hates idols. It's because he gave us life. Paul says in the last part of verse 25, he says, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, God created you. He's saying to these, this group of Athenians, God created you. He gave you life. And he, he understands life better than you, you. In fact, he went to great lengths to create you and to bring you into existence. And then even deeper, we understand that, as Paul will explain the gospel, is that not only did he give you life, he gave you breath in your lungs, he brought you into existence, but he wants to give you another dimension of life that goes beyond the physical reality. And God has gone through the great, to the greatest lengths to do that for us. He's given us life. Think about all that what God has done on our behalf. He's brought us into the world He has given us life. He's created us. And then he's working in our lives for us to understand his grace and his mercy and his compassion through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be forgiven for sin, that we can have a life that we were created to live through a relationship with God. And he has given everything to that end. So just think about that. Anything that comes in the way of impeding that life or threatening that life, don't you think that God's going to react relatively strong? The answer would be yes. He is, because he loves you. He created you. Next week, we're going to talk about Psalm 139. He knit us together in our, in our parent and our mother's womb. He knows every intricate detail of our life. So anything that threatens his purpose for our life, he's going to come after with a vengeance. That's how deep God loves us. If you're a parent, you can maybe understand this in that way in terms of anything that would ever threaten the life of your child, you're going to come after I shared about Courtney earlier, but let me tell you about one of my friends who, we're, we're, we're good friends, and it's funny, we are the polar opposite. He grew up in a really rough neighborhood. In fact, he was a brawler growing up. He's like taking on every kid in the neighborhood. He went into the army, perfect. You have a guy with a temper, a gun, that's a great match, right? But just a tough guy, big, played football, just, and I mean, but he's got a really sweet heart, but just, just you don't cross him. He's just a tough guy. And so he, he told me, he, his son, uh, uh, he and his wife, he's a little bit older than me, he and his wife had just gotten married a few years uh, earlier, and then they had their son, and I think, he, I'm trying to remember, he might have been like weeks old, but I don't know, I thought it maybe months, but just a small little baby, and they were on their way home from a friend's house one night, and they pulled up a, to a stoplight, and out of nowhere, some guy runs up to their car and just starts pounding on the window and screaming. And it's right next to where his son is sitting. And so he's watching this. And all of a sudden, another guy comes on the other car and starts pounding. And they're screaming at them and, and figuring they're going to try to rob him or something. So I'm like, well, dude, what did you do? Because I know what I do. I'm like, I don't care if it's a red light. I'm hitting the gas. I'm out of there. He goes, well, I got out of the car. <laughs> I'm like, what did you do that for? He goes, they're pounding on my window. They're going to break the window. They're going to hurt my newborn son. I got to do something. I'm like, dude, you're crazy. I'm serious. I'm like, you're insane. So I said, well, what happened? He goes, well, the first guy who was on my side of the car, he came right at me, threw a punch. I ducked, and then I, pow, he goes, I hit him right in the face, knocked him out cold, first punch. I'm like, whoa. He goes, and the second guy jumped on top of me. He came around the car, and I threw him off me, and by the time there's a third guy coming from the side, he looked at me, he sized himself up, he saw his two friends on the ground, and then they all ran. I said, are you serious? You're making that. He goes, no, I'm serious. I said, just remind me never to cross you, and 
ever go after your son because I, I don't want that to happen to me. What happened inside of him? He told me, he goes, I went crazy. He goes, they were going to hurt my son. I wasn't going to let that happen. And so he got out of the car and went after them. I'm like, you're my hero. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else, but I'm like, that is, every, every dad, like, yes, the hero, right? So I'm like, I'm, it'll ruin my whole idea of him if someday I find out that's not what really happened. So maybe I should ask his wife, but see what happens when the person that you love the most is threatened. You come after it. The thing that threatens them, you come after them. This is how God feels about us. When idols come to bear in our life, God goes after them with everything, including his own son, to die so that you and I could let idols die in our life so we don't have to go down a road of destruction because idols ultimately lead to death. And here's the final reality. God hates idols because he has a specific purpose. So verse 26 and 27, Paul says this, and he made, talking of God, from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So what, what is Paul saying? He's saying to this group of people who are worshiping idols, you've missed it. The true God of the universe has brought you into existence has chosen the time and the place of where you should live for one purpose, so that you'd find him. But you found a substitute. But he keeps pursuing, and he keeps coming after, and he keeps orchestrating the circumstances of your life. And this is what we have to understand. God has done all this. He's given us life. He's given us spiritual life through Jesus' death and resurrection. He continues to pursue. He's actually chosen the place where you live right now, even though you think you chose it. He's chosen the time when you live because he has one reason for that. He wants you to find him. The real thing. God has set up your entire life for that purpose. So you'll find him and find him over and over and over and over again. God has set up everything. Every day of your life, whether you know it or not, even though you found God and he's found you and you've embraced him, he still pursues you. Why? Because our hearts are prone to wander. So he continues to pursue. It's like a cheesy Chevy commercial I saw that came out a couple years ago where this guy's going to propose to his prospective, obviously, fiance, and he's gone to great lengths. In fact, he's rented a plane. He's got it. It's, 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 you know, dragging one of those banners. It's a huge thing in the sky. It says, will you marry me? And so he's got it all set up. And so they're driving in his car, and he's driving like a madman. And she's like, geez, pipe down. What is your problem? And he's driving, and all of a sudden, he drives to the top of this parking structure, slams on the brakes, still, get out, get out. So she's getting out of the car. He's getting out of the car. He runs out behind the car. He gets down on one knee, and he puts his hands up like this. And you're like, what is he doing? He's got it timed perfectly. Just as he puts his hands up, the the plane is flying right behind him. And just above his hands is the banner that says, will you marry me? The problem is, is she's really slow. And so she can't get out of the car very fast. And she's distracted by why well, he can't figure out why he's driving so fast. And literally she turns just as the moment the plane goes right out of sight. And so he's like waiting for her to respond. And she doesn't respond. He turns and the plane's gone. He's all, get in the car. So they get in the car and it starts all over again because he's got the next place plan he's got to drive to. So he can do that same thing over and over and over again until finally she sees what he's talking about. Not unlike every single day of your life, whether you know it or not, God has positioned you to find him. 
at work in you, at work around you. Why? Because he's jealous for your affection because he's the best and he will be the best in your life and he will pursue you and pursue you until the day you die. But here's the reality. Why not live before you die? Why not discover who Jesus is, the real thing, not the cheap idols and substitutes that we try to make up as God, but actually surrender those things in such a way that we actually experience life. How many times will God have to orchestrate circumstances to get your attention? Unlimited. His love never fails. He'll continue to pursue. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join me because we're going to sing one last song. But what I ask you to do is, if, if in just preparation for this, uh, I want to ask you, if you would, for a moment, and this is just as a point of focus, go ahead and, and close your eyes, if you would. Because as we come to a conclusion of this, this series, I want you to know this series started six months ago. And we've only been in for a few months, but it really started six months ago because there was a Sunday that we took some time in our Sunday morning gatherings to to unpack some of the things we felt like the Lord was saying to us. And there was a lot of images of water that the Lord was, was communicating to us about who we are and what's going on in our lives. And, and the wa- water in the Bible always symbolizes God's presence and His Spirit at work and, and this renewing and refreshing that He brings. And so there was, a, there was a, a, an image or picture that was, was given about God's work even in our city, in our valley. And it was this image, if you don't recall, it was an image of Simi Valley and across our valley were just lined up as far as the eye could see were Asherah poles and Asherah poles are an Old Testament form of worship that that people would worship pagan gods by erecting this pole and the pole would be a reminder of their their devotion to their God and, and so it was an image of idolatry in the Old Testament but in this picture that was given to our church that, that this, our city was just filled with these poles And then from one side of our valley to another came this rushing water. And as the water came, it began to wash away those poles, just destroy them and and to remove them from where they were. And and even that morning when that was shared and, and we were worshiping, this is what I saw. I saw people within our own church as that water was coming, come up on the other side of that Asherah pole and plant their feet and try to hold that thing up as the water came, thinking somehow they could keep it standing against the water. And what was being hit on was, God was saying there's idols among us that need to be destroyed, that people need to let go of. Because they're hanging on and they're resisting what I want to do in their life. And the only way that they will come into full relationship with me is if they're willing to surrender the idols of their life. And so as we close this series, I want you to remember that beginning of the series, I said there's usually two responses to idols. The first one is we live in denial. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. And if we, we react that way, we know it is. Then if we get pushed in, then we react stronger and we say no, no, no. And we hang on and we almost get offended that someone would poke into that part of our life and we say that that's not an idol. Or we go to the other side and we we downplay it so much that we almost think it's not really that big of a deal. I can stop any time. I, I don't, that's, not, that's not an idol in my life. And so either way, our, our pride pushes us to say it's not an idol or we downplay it to say the significance is not idolatry in our life. Either way, what Jesus has called us to do is not to deny or to downplay. He's called us to deal with the idols in our life because they're there. 
So today we have an opportunity once again, whatever it is that God has highlighted to you and has pinpointed to you, that's an idol. Today's the day that you lay it down and you find freedom and you embrace the fullness of his love because Jesus is not just asking us to lay down idols and then somehow there's this vacuum of nothingness behind them. He's asking us to lay down idols because they've taken the place of his love and affection in our life and he wants us to feel the weight of that today in us. So as we sing this song and we close, I'm gonna ask you once again, would you surrender to God's love as he comes and overwhelms the idols in our life and exposes them as what they are. They're cheap, they're substitutes, they're man-made. And then we realize what we've been looking for is God. And he is here. Jesus, would you come now? Would you come by your love like a flood into our hearts? Would you destroy the idols that have taken our affection and attention away from you? And in, in, in return, Lord, as we see those things wash away, that what we begin to understand is how deeply and how passionately you actually do love us. And you want the best. And the best is you. Jesus, would you do this in your name?